third episode of our 2021 podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline. And I'm Caroline White. In this podcast, David Somek of the EHFF will be interviewing Professor John Drury of Sussex University and Cormac Russell of Nurture Development. They'll be talking about collective behaviour in times of crisis. We'll be hearing about ways in which communities can come together when circumstances call for it, and how that sense of solidarity can be encouraged to take root, be stimulated and grow, rather than fade away over time. We'll go over now to David. I'm very pleased today to have two distinguished colleagues with me to discuss the whole issue of social cohesion and how this might influence social change. And this is in the background of the major disaster of the pandemic, which has highlighted some things that we know about, but which are more obvious at the moment. And I'll start straight away by introducing Professor John Drury, a professor of social psychology at Sussex University. And John, if you'd like to say a little bit about the work you've been doing. Okay, so my background is in the study of collective behaviour. And for the last 15 years, I've been looking at collective behaviour in emergencies and disasters. And one of the dominant representations of public behaviour in these events is of panic, implying selfishness, irrationality, and so on. But over 50 years of research by social scientists find that what's actually more common is cooperative behaviour. So people coordinate their response, they help each other, sometimes to the extent that they make personal self-sacrifices. So um, I've been researching collective behaviour in emergencies and disasters for a number of years. And so when the pandemic struck, um, I was not surprised to see that at the beginning, there was a change in the way that members of the public related to each other. So people were more sociable. There was a sense of unity. There was an outpouring of altruism or supportive behaviour. And these features are actually quite common in emergencies. They're called disaster communities or altruistic communities. They've been noted for a number of years, whereby the context changes how we define ourselves. So we stop defining ourselves in individual terms and see our similarity to others around us. We see our sociality for the first time in a way. And we certainly saw this all around the world with the pandemic. And as well as kind of mundane manifestations like people saying hello to their neighbours more, and there's a lot of documentation of that, I think the most interesting feature of this new cooperation was the rise of what's been called mutual aid groups. Now, these arose because of the need of many people to have to self-isolate as part of the pandemic. So people had to stay at home for 10 or 14 days, depending on their country's regulations, when they'd been notified they had a positive test for the virus or they'd been in contact with someone. Now, what's different about self-isolation compared to wearing a mask or keeping two metre distance or washing hands? So all those things, washing your hands, wearing a mask, etc. You can do that on your own. 
they're within your power as an individual. But to self-isolate requires cooperation. You can't do that on your own. You need other people, right? Well, you need financial support, but you also need practical support. You need who's going to do your shopping, right? You haven't got social connections. It's not going to happen. So many people are lucky enough to have neighbours or friends living nearby who would do it for them. But here in the UK, at least, I know this is true everywhere else, thousands of new mutual aid groups arose. And in addition, other groups that had already existed, other community groups reformulated, reconstrued themselves as mutual aid groups to meet that need. And so they they either knocked on people's doors, they got in contact with the local authority, they found out who was in need, they did their shopping, they walked their dogs, they got their prescriptions, they delivered their post, they provided emotional support, And this was absolutely essential in the public health response. But it's worth noting, too, that altruistic communities are quite hard to sustain. You think of all the energy that goes into that and the resources required. So these groups struggled over the months that the pandemic continued, just as all altruistic communities do. But they have continued. And our research has been looking at what these groups need to sustain themselves materially and psychologically. Because a year on, many of them are still going. They're still meeting people's needs and people are still self-isolating and others are still doing their shopping. But there's one last thing to say about this, which is, you know, what is the future? Because for some of these groups, this way of organising has given them a glimpse into what could be. And some of them are talking about, well, you know, when the pandemic's over, what are we going to do with this group? We've got this new way of relating to each other. What can we, we do with it in the future? How can we apply this to other areas of our lives? So I'll leave it there. That's extremely helpful. But could you maybe say a couple of words about the other work you'd done about how government communication also impacted on people's response to the situation? Yeah, I mean, communication in emergencies is where the the role of the authorities comes in, because the model I'm describing to you, it's almost like there's an endogenous process, right, psychologically, that when you get a disaster, the sense of common fate brings people together, and that new identity is the basis of the motivation to support one another, okay? So the role of the authorities, then, is to facilitate that, is to do things that don't get in the way of it. And the main way in emergencies to do that is to communicate, right? Because the authorities have information about the pandemic. They have the risk information. They've got the guidance. They speak to the experts. So it's their role to provide that information to give the public the efficacy they need to be empowered to act. And that's true for all emergencies. And it's been true for this pandemic. And we've seen quite mixed evidence on the effectiveness of the communications of this government in the UK. I mean, some of the early messaging did seem to take on board some of the psychology I'm talking about. Because if you remember, the messaging was stay at home, save the NHS, stay at home for others, do it for others, do it for your neighbours, do it for your community. Now, that was actually more effective than some of the messaging which said you need to do it to look after yourself. It's actually less motivating to think about your own personal interest, because if you consider young people, for example, they're less likely to be ill and they can easily discount that kind of individualistic messaging. Whereas the kind of collectivist messaging that has more purchase and is more likely to get engagement. 
So that was one feature. But the other feature is the lack of clarity. So the UK government messaging was relatively effective until they changed from stay at home to stay alert. And when they did that, I was reminded of some of the least effective communication in emergency management more generally, when authorities say things like, stay calm, don't panic. These pieces of advice about how to feel are pretty useless, because if you're already anxious, it's not going to help you. And what will make you less anxious is actually practical advice. And what was good about stay at home was it's practical, you knew what to do. Whereas stay alert, what does it mean? How alert? What does alert mean? What's the appropriate alertness level? And we noticed after they did change the messaging in that way, that public understanding, public knowledge of the rules started to decline. Also, so did some levels of public adherence. So the messaging really matters, not just how we're addressed and who's being addressed, but the clarity of the messaging. That's very helpful, John. It reminds me of, you know, we do quite a lot of work on patient empowerment and helping training staff to support patients in health literacy. But if they do it badly, in fact, they in fact disempower people. And I think this is a, a similar kind of message. Before we go on to discuss the wider implications of that, I'd be very grateful perhaps if I could introduce my second a contributor today, Cormac Russell, who runs an outfit called Nurture Development, she'll explain, but uh, who is very much interested in community action. Well, you can explain, Cormac, <laughs> please. Sure, David. Good to be with you both. Well, I suppose our work is very much looking at this idea that communities have capacities and that sometimes it's easy, both within a community and if you're outside trying to be useful, to overlook those capacities and maybe even as we've just heard John describe there, sometimes inadvertently disable them, even in the name of trying to help. So the emphasis on an asset-based rather than a deficit-based approach is something that I'd be known for, which isn't the same as being Pollyanna and just seeing uh, the glass half full, but very much recognizing those capacities. I mean, it's interesting in the pandemic, for example, that one of the things that we can see as a high watermark of success is level of compliance. But in fact, if you take the Ebola crisis, it was the ability of local communities to be creative and responsive. That was actually what worked in the end, because in indigenous communities, if the option is to be compliant and to never see a family member again, you're probably not going to be compliant. Uh, so being creative, being responsive, we saw this as well in the 80s when folks got more organized around the human rights components of gay rights and of the right to retroviral drugs and so on and so forth. A lot of what we were seeing was good community development, which kind of takes us beyond behavior change per se and much more into associational life and the strength of associational groups and how associations can be organized at neighborhood level or village level. So I'm very, very interested in this idea of the neighborhood as the unit of change rather than the individual behavior or indeed the competence of the institution. And I think the difficulty that we have is, is kind of the preset dialectic, the conversation that we're expected to have is one about the individual being the unit of change. So that's why, for example, public health has been hijacked. It's all now about lifestyle choice or indeed the institutional reform being the issue. So if we could just get those two lined up, we'd be well and we'd be fine. We'd be better and we'd be safer. 
And I contest that that's just seeing a three-legged stool on the basis of its two legs or only two legs. It's, it, it's not the full picture. And I'm interested in that third leg, the neighborhood, the place, the culture. Could you just expand on that? You make a very important point, I think, which is related partly to the cult of individualism as well, of course, and has perhaps been affected by the current economic model, as, as among other things. But in terms of the, the bottom-up, the importance of neighbourhood and cohesion, what do you see about that in terms of its wider significance as if you build this more, how it can actually produce wider societal change? Well, probably what's more useful here in in relation to this is the actual practical experiences that communities have had in different contexts. So if you take East Lawndale in Chicago in 1995, the very, very poor, economically oppressed neighborhood, but because of the associational life they had, their ability to respond and kind of grow even something more significant, I think, than resilience, which was anti-fragility, was pretty self-evident. By contrast, looking at some of the economically depressed neighborhoods in France, particularly in Paris, you know, the urban conurbations, poor substandard housing, and looking at that in 2003 in that heat wave. And it's pretty clear, it seems, that if you're an older woman living on your own, over 65 or so in poor housing, that you're really very, very vulnerable in a context like a heat wave. But the mitigating circumstances in East Lawndale as against what we saw in Paris was the associational life. So I think often people look at that and you end up with, you know, social prescribing or you end up with kind of really quite facile relief action projects, which are useful up to a point, but don't actually really change the social order. What I'm kind of interested in here is how we get past, I mean, the really interesting mutual aid stuff is not about sympathy, it's about empathy. It's about culture change. It's not just about relief action. So how do we get to that kind of stuff? That's what I'm curious about. And I think that happens by good community organizing, good community building, It doesn't happen by top-down relief action or programs. So we use the term bottom-up, and it's probably not always helpful, but maybe community-driven, culturally oriented. So to John's point, you know, how do we go from random acts of kindness to culturally embedded acts of resilience? And I think that's that we're not going to wish our way into that. You know, the pandemic opens up the gaps or the, the need for it. But the actual process of doing it, it's another challenge all in and of itself. And one of the ways, there's many, but one of the ways that certainly I'm convinced by is getting down onto street level and doing the relationship building, really beginning to kind of find out what people's priorities are, what they want to work on, not just for a pandemic, but for a more cohesive community experience, community life. Absolutely. No, I'm I'm fascinated by that too, because we certainly, in my organization, thinking about how you might change the way the health system works, but more widely, really, because, of course, it's integrated into all aspects of society, education, the economics, the environment, and so on, is how to nurture uh, that community-based action. Certainly, we've done a piece of scenario planning, which shows much to our surprise, it came up very strongly that social pressure, the awareness of the public, public working together was a very powerful driver for change. 
Uh, John, I wanted to turn to you to pick up the point you made because you didn't dwell on it. But again, it's highly relevant to what Cormac was talking about, which is you were saying how to sustain the sort of wartime (laughs) solidarity beyond the disaster. And do you have any comments on that? Well, this is something we're, we're investigating at the moment, a year on into the pandemic. And our study has been involved interviewing the organisers of mutual aid groups to look at their, their wisdom, really, what works, mm. right? Because they're the ones who've been trying to keep people together, keeping the group going for this time. So we wanted to see what their strategies were and then look at how these strategies predict you know, what are known in the research on collective action and volunteering to be the main predictors of participation, which include shared social identity, group efficacy, sense of justice, that kind of thing. And we got a number of different answers. And I think, you know, if you're already an activist, you already got experience of social movements, you know, these might be familiar to you, because I think, you know, we're not necessarily saying something new, but many of the people coming into mutual aid they are new to it. So you've got kind of three groups in a way. You've got people that already were involved in community groups and volunteering. You've got political activist types and you've got people that are new. Right? You've got these three different populations. So some of the things people are saying that have worked are things like considering self-care, right? Because being involved in these groups is actually quite stressful. It's quite demanding, can be quite risky. So people need to feel that they're being cared about by their organisers and the organisers need to think about how to care for their members. Second one is meeting and communication. So normally, if you're in a campaign or you're in a group, one of the ways that you bring people together and keep people in touch with your values and what you're about is through meetings. And at meetings, you talk about who you are, what you're doing, what your aims are. And so on. We can't really do that at the moment because we're all physically distanced. But, you know, there are kind of equivalents which include, you know, regular communication, just telling people what's going on, letting them know. So opening up channels of communication, finding some kind of equivalent of that that meeting space. The third one is what we call horizontality, which means the way that the group is structured or organised is participatory. It's true that you ha- you do have organisers and those who are kind of volunteers. So you have got a kind of division, yet there's different ways of doing that. There are ways of allowing the volunteers to be more involved and have ownership, right? Because they- if they're simply kind of client volunteers who simply log on and do a job, that's a bit alienating. And some people did say they found the way the group was organised a bit alienating, whereas others felt involved. And that's involvement motivated them to get more involved in the future so those are just three of the ideas but they're things that people can do I mean what's nice about this project is we can say at the end look we can go back to other groups and say you know these are the things we've learned these are the things that work that you can use in your mutual aid group in the future or in other similar groups Um, these things work but there's a couple of other things I want to mention because I don't want to end up being understood as saying this is just about psychology and nothing else because that's not true, right? There's a material substrate, if you like, to organising two groups and two identities, right? And it's a simple thing, but, you know, it needs to be said that organisers who are themselves volunteers are doing this in their spare time or they're, you know, they've got, they're on the dole or something. 
if they got paid, it would be a lot easier for them. One. Two, if they had resources like space to store things, space to cook things, if they're one of those groups that does that, the council could help them with that. So that's the second one. So those material factors could also sustain groups because it's not just about ideas and motivations. You've got to have the material resources for you to put those ideas into practice. So those are some of the lessons we're taking from the, from the mutual aid um, movement um, at the moment. I have to say there's a, a hidden agenda on my part <laughs> in the sense that both FASTA and EHFF have recently joined the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and we're trying to set up a Wellbeing Economy Alliance hub in Ireland and the job there is to really build a network, a local network to help increase people's awareness of the value of the well-being economy so that they can, as communities, influence government. And what you and Karmic and John have been talking about are really helpful pointers towards some of the aspects of that task. I think we should finish at this point, except can I ask any final remark from you, Cormac? Yeah, I think just a couple of things to add. One is, I think it's really important to say that the function of a citizen isn't just to influence government. I think, <laughs> you know, we be very, very careful about that one. Um, I think fundamentally the function of citizenship is to have allegiance with other citizens. And then the state would be supplementary to that. And it's a really important point. So I think I w- would certainly advocate basic income as a way of enabling that to happen. But I think if the funding is coming from state with that will come a whole set of expectations. So it's important that we take account of power here um, because it both it diminishes the capacity of the citizen to be at the center and just basically relegates them as advisors or as grant recipients uh, or maybe at best as kind of advocates. But it's all about service land. It's all about programs and what the state will do to make me better. And I think that's that there's nothing quicker and more effective at disabling and reducing the resilience of a human being than stripping them of their citizenship and of their neighborliness. The minute the state comes into a driving seat, then at best the citizens in the back seat and more likely they're on the side of the road. (laughs) And often they're on the side of the road when they actually need to be in the driving seat most. Um, So, you know, one of the things that's really clear about March, April and May was that the mutual aids, however they organized, reminded us that in a pandemic that the first responders are actually the citizens. So there's a kind of an unstated hydraulic relationship here that as the system hits the limits of its capacity and becomes really honest about, hey guys, we actually can't do anymore. And if we do, we'll break the system. So there's a kind of a compelling message that says it's all on you now and uh, that you're the first responder and that your community is the site of first response, the front line, if you like, if you want to use those terms. I'm cautious about using militaristic terms because inevitably it leads to jingoism and all kinds of silliness. But there was certainly that sense of it. So you could see people organizing traffic light systems to care for each other and, you know, things really, things of huge utility. Now, I think the question that sort of is still alive for me in the conversation is, having been mindful of that hydraulic relationship, what is it 
that the institution constantly does that actually pulls the power back into the institutional domain and sucks it back out of the, uh, the community again. And, and I think one of the ways of saying to all the mutual aid groups, you've done a wonderful job, folks. Well done. Can we fund you now, please, so that you can do it more formally and then we can regulate you and audit you? And the answer to that has to be bugger off because you don't actually understand what it is your job is and what it is we're doing, if that's your offer. Resourcing the community, I think, is the first conversation. We've seen you know, narratives around leveling up and stuff of that nature. Look, at the end of the day, what I've seen in the UK and I've seen it in Ireland too, is an institutional world that's really good at relocating responsibility, but very poor at relocating power and resource. So I love what John was saying. The resource has to be relocated properly and authentically and democratically. And largely, I've not seen that happen very well in most states. So there's a huge complex piece of work about power and about social justice to be worked through. And I think the mutual aid groups are one way of learning from that. Uh, Black Lives Matters, which has been teaching us a lot about, you know, how to be responsive in a way that really welcomes those that have been racially excluded and, you know, have suffered the greatest toll of this pandemic. I think we need to be listening much more cautiously and carefully to folks who are teaching what's needed, actually, when it comes to building real solidarity at the grassroots level. My biggest fear, David and John, is, is that as we come forward and the state sort of says we're getting the importance of mutual aids and mutual aid groups and solidarity related groups, that we move back into the funding narrative and that the groups actually start trading off their autonomy and their power for the king shilling. You make an excellent point. I think if we're all committed to the kind of social change you're talking about, then people need to be aware of those dangers. John, I feel I need to give you a chance to just do your final piece as well in response to Cormac. Well, no, I think Cormac's completely right. In fact, this is, the worry is it's already happening. That tension between autonomy and resource has been happening for six months. I mean, there's been a lot of these groups that, you know, to continue, they've gone to funding models that are constraining them. That's already happening, which is really unfortunate because, you know, the problem is just as you say, because then what they do is constrained by who pays them. I mean, there was a big drop-off. It was noticeable. It was a big drop-off in participation when, for many people, the furlough ended because the furloughed people were the volunteers. The furlough ended... And, you know, they lost the volunteers. So, you know, that still needs to be resolved. Within the current system, it's not easy to see what the alternative is. I mean, on the one hand, you've got some groups who are already not wanting to be kind of recuperated in that way. But nevertheless, all of them, even the ones that, you know, are quite politically critical, need some kind of relationship with the authorities in, in a practical way. Right? If you think about a local authority in a, any district, in any town, you know, they are the ones who are likely to know who the vulnerable people are, who are the people who are most likely to need their shopping being done. Um, and that's not the same thing as the resourcing, but it is to say that the authorities, what the authorities have, again, as I said at the beginning, is information. They have the knowledge, right? And the way they empower groups is by sharing that knowledge, sharing it appropriately to enable those groups to do things. But they also have resources which they can also easily share because they have space. So some of these groups are held up by little things like storage space. You know, we're all, mm. you know, people are operating from their vats. 
They need to store food. They need to store leaflets. The authorities can help with this. No strings attached quite easily. So there is some scope and there's a lot of problems, as we said, that there is some scope for, you know, the sharing of power, if you like, to enable these groups to carry on as there are with their ethos intact. This is a fascinating conversation. We know we could carry on for some time, but we have to watch the clock for this recording. But look, I'm deeply grateful to both of you for giving your time like this. And it's so interesting what you've been talking about. I'm sure we'll come back to this again. But thanks again. That was David Somek of EHFF interviewing John Drury, a professor of social psychology at Sussex University and Cormac Russell, the Managing Director of Nurture Development. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues and spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps. Tune in also at the end of May for our next episode. Many thanks to Professor John Drury and Cormac Russell for their participation, to David Somek for the interviews, and of course to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Slán agaibh galair. Thank you.